Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard the phrase war on poverty to describe LBJ's legislation to help the poor in the 1960s. But what about the war on apathy? This phrase was coined by Ned Cole, the son of an Irish immigrant raised in Hartford South End and founder of the organization The Revitalization Corps. Today, we talk with author Andrew Carl about his book on coal, including Cole's fight to open up Connecticut's shoreline to everyone, especially minorities. The book is called Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Now, did you grow up with a summer home or cottage along Connecticut's shoreline? Do you remember the campaign to open up these beaches to non-residents? We want to hear from you this hour. The number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And coming up later, we'll also hear from a Hartford resident who was one of the city kids who rode buses to shore towns to protest these exclusive beaches with coal and this group, the Revitalization Corps. But first, we want to learn more about how much of Connecticut's more than 200 miles of shoreline became private. Joining us from a studio at University of Virginia, again, is Andrew Carl, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies, also author of this book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. He joins us today from a studio again at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So what drew you to focus in on this history of privatization on Connecticut's shoreline? Yeah, I'd always, I've always been interested in looking at the history of, of inequality and land use in America and understanding the sort of relationship between the two and also the sort of history of, of environmental injustice. And Ned Cole is a person who really sort of brought these issues into focus. Um, and that was sort of what ultimately drew me to his story. And also just the sort of um, how captivating he was in, as an individual and how many um, sort of critical issues that his organization raised um, during that time. Well, where did you grow up, Andrew? Uh, is this something when you said you've always been interested in, in these issues, something that you noticed growing up? You know, I grew up in Ohio, so <laughs> far from the coast, but um, nevertheless had been always drawn to um, beaches and coastal areas as um, a particularly fragile environmental resource, but also one that has experienced profound change as a result of development. And also the kind of, you know, the tension between that desire for openness, the sense that beaches belong to everyone versus the reality, which is that in America today, many coastal areas are very exclusive and exclusionary to the general public. So if we look at history, you know, when did this push for uh, privatizing uh, beach access in Connecticut and other places really take off? You know, it began in Connecticut very early, and in many respects, um, Connecticut was sort of a trendsetter in the in the move toward um, privatizing um, shorelines. Um, really, in the early 1900s, you began to see the proliferation of private beach associations up and down the shorelines, and these are sort of a forerunner to the modern gated community in that they are sort of governed, um, have a sort of private form of governance, and also sort of um, privatize public space, namely their beaches. Um, but th- so that was, in a sense, a sort of a trend that we began 
began to see um, spread across the U.S. Um, really in the post-World War II decades, but in Connecticut it began much earlier in the early 20th century. Uh, here in Connecticut, many of us are familiar with uh, the term Gold Coast, and we'll be talking more about uh, that part of the of the state in a little bit. But when we look at the people that were uh, part of these beach associations, they weren't all the super wealthy, were they? No, not at all. I mean, that was actually the model that sort of um, was developed in the early 20th century was one that would sort of had prefabricated um, communities that would really allow for, say, middle class um, white families um, to be able to own a second home. Uh, many of these um, beach associations, especially on the, in the eastern half of the state, um, were often identified with either um, you know, religious or ethnic groups. There's the Irish beach, the Italian beach, the Jewish beach. But you know, this is um, you know that. So in a sense, it was not um, all very super wealthy folks, but it was also very exclusionary. Um, you know, all of these beach associations invariably were governed by r- racial covenants that barred the sale of lots to um, African Americans. So, you know, even though it was not, these were not all, you know, very wealthy um, communities, they were ones that were very much off limits to um, a segment of the state's population. And when we look at Connecticut's coast, uh, we're looking at uh, more than 200 miles of shoreline. But how much of that was actually open uh, to anyone, Andrew? You know, less than seven, around seven miles of it um, was considered generally open to the public. And the rest was either um, in, you know, in the hands of uh, private homeowners or um, were public beaches that were really public in name only. Um, they, they were rest- you know, many communities restricted their public beaches to residents only or placed um, severe restrictions on the ability of non-residents to be able to actually access them. So as a result, by the time you get to the 1960s and 70s, when the, my story really um, begins, um, there's very few places along the state shoreline that um, a person, say, living in Hartford or elsewhere in, in the state who you know, wasn't fortunate enough to be able to own a home along the shore, um, there was very few places that they could actually go to enjoy the shoreline. And you mentioned in your book uh, these were the um, the result of what's called exclusionary zoning, uh, keeping certain mm-hmm. people out of specific areas, beach associations and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, exclusionary zoning was really the sort of chief mechanism of segregations across the state and really throughout the Northeast. I mean, you have communities that um, often zoned land in a way that made it next to impossible for um, low-income people to live in their communities. I mean, in, in Greenwich, for instance, you know, over one half, over one third of the entire town was zoned at four-acre lots minimum, so that you had to you know, have your house on a four-acre lot to be able to even live there. And um, this was a sort of pattern that we saw throughout the state is that, you know, you had really areas of concentrated affluence that was kind of locked in. And as a result, you know, you know people of modest means really had no ability to move into communities because of local zoning ordinances. Uh, before we learn more about uh, Ned Cole, uh, were there any other uh, state residents or um, you know, state officials that were bringing attention to um, some of the consequences of these restrictions, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, you had both people who were calling, um, who were sounding the alarm on the environmental costs of of um, shoreline overdevelopment and privatization. You had, you know, the sort of um, rampant destruction of coastal wetlands that was occurring up until the 1960s, and you also had those who were sort of connecting um, this issue of of exclusionary beaches to a broader set of um, exclusionary practices in schools and in housing markets. So even in the 1960s, you had early attempts to sort of use the issue of of, um, 
speech exclusion as an opening wedge in a larger battle against, say, um, school segregation and against um, exclusionary housing markets. But um, it was really not until the 1970s and with Ned Cole's campaigns that you really began to see this issue become um, a real lightning rod um, statewide. This is where we live. Uh, with us from a studio at University of Virginia is Andrew Carl. He's an associate professor of history and African-American studies and the author of this new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Now, if you uh, have a home along the shore, if you remember growing up there as a child, we want to hear from you, especially if you remember uh, the campaign uh, to free the beaches, uh, so to speak, uh, to borrow from Andrew's uh, book title. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about um, of Ned Cole. I should give out the number, 860-275-7266. But Andrew, tell us about Ned. So he w- he grew up in Hartford, born to an Irish immigrant. Uh, what's his story? Yeah, Ned grew up the sort of, you know, the life of a sort of comfortable middle class um, white American living in post-war America. He um, went to Fairfield University, graduated with honors, um, and was sort of living the dream, as at least as his parents envisioned. He um, returned to Hartford and got a job at, um, in the insurance industry. He was all sort of set to um, live that sort of middle-class life of comfort. Um, and then he made a very sharp detour. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the, I guess, the factors that led him to that detour. So, um, you know, his mother in, in the book you write, you know, she was, she always hoped that he would have a comfortable life uh, working in, in the insurance industry. But when he went to Fairfield University, he started to meet um, some people who challenged the notions that he grew up with, one being a, an African-American professor? Yeah, Walter Petrie, who... Um who was a professor at Fairfield and was um, also, he, you know, he, as Ned described, really opened his eyes to the problem of racism in America and inequality. And he did so through um, taking groups of students down to Harlem um, and, and walking them through the neighborhoods, getting them acquainted with um, the culture, with the um, sort of, you know, the, the community, as well as the struggles and um, got them to sort of see firsthand um, African-American life and culture and um, urban inequality, not just sort of, you know, talking about it in a classroom. And I think that really stuck with Ned, the idea of sort of direct engagement, um, communication on a sort of interpersonal level, as opposed to sort of intellectualizing um, these problems. And he went on to graduate from Fairfield and work uh, in the insurance industry. But there was another uh, point uh, that made him kind of question what he was doing with his life. And that was when uh, JFK was assassinated. Yeah, I mean, John F. Kennedy was someone who was very influential to him. He really looked up to him, you know, again, as a sort of um, young Irish-American Catholic. And um, his death really sort of led um, Ned to sort of question what he was doing in life. And, you know, he had had long been struck by that sort of call to service that Kennedy had issued with his um, inaugural address. And, you know, after his death, he began to ask himself what he was doing to help contribute to making this a a more um, engaged, um, less cynical country. And um, that was when he decided to quit his job and start this sort of domestic peace corps, as he described it, called Revitalization Corps. And we're going to learn more about the Revitalization Corps in just a little bit. But I'm curious, uh, Andrew, what the reaction was of his family to this change uh, in his life, especially his mother. You have an interesting anecdote in your book. 
they they were not too pleased, his mother in particular. I mean, again, she was someone who very much sort of wanted him to sort of live a very conventional life and um, was horrified um, by his decision to, you know, quit a job, a you know, very you know, promising career and um, start, you know, this sort of anti-poverty organization um, that was in particular um, addressing problems of racism and in seeking to engage and work with um, the city's African-American communities to the point where she had concluded that he had literally sort of, you know, lost lost his mind. She actually had him committed to a state mental hospital um, after he had made this decision. Um, that was how sort of fiercely opposed she was. And she actually blamed um, Walter Petrie, the professor who she thought had poisoned her son's mind in college, um, for his decision. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you heading out to the beach this Memorial Day weekend? Much of the Connecticut shoreline was once off limits to people, unless you lived in a shore town or belonged to a beach association. Today we're learning about the fight to open beaches to the public. Connecticut resident Ned Cole helped bring awareness to the issue beginning in the 1960s. And our guest today is Andrew Carl, author of a new book called Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. He joins us today from a studio at the University of Virginia. Up next, we're going to learn more about how Cole's campaign was received by Shore Towns. Do you remember the fight to open up Connecticut's beaches? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're learning about Ned Cole, a Connecticut resident and anti-poverty activist that worked to make Connecticut's shoreline accessible to all. Author Andrew Carl documents uh, his efforts in his new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Andrew's joining us from the studio at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And there's an excerpt of his book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Andrew, we were talking about uh, Ned Cole, uh, Lee, leaving this, uh, his career of working in insurance to form the Revitalization Corps, uh, similar to the Peace Corps. But uh, talk us through um, how he went about doing that and getting people to buy into what he was, uh, was the message that he was trying to relay. Yeah, I mean, as you said at the outset, I mean, he was very much focused on waging a war on apathy, in particular, waging that in the suburbs, you know, amongst the the middle class whites and you know, in West Hartford and um, other suburbs that had sort of really left the city, and as he saw it, abandoned um, its African American community and Puerto Rican communities. And um, he really wanted to sort of engage with them and sort of find ways to sort of build bridges of communication that could combat the sort of vicious, cancerous stereotypes that many um, suburban whites had of um, urban America and particularly of uh, African-American communities. And he started by opening up an office. And what about the, uh, I guess, the connection to Harlem when he would go there? So did he start in Harlem and then work in yeah. Hartford? Yeah. Yeah, so he, you know, he started by opening up a storefront in, in Hartford, um, call, and he put in, you know, he put um, classifieds in the newspaper calling on um, folks to volunteer their time. You know, he said, you know, just three hours a week, um, either tutoring, um, working on helping um, 
young African-American men find jobs, other, a variety of activities. So it was very much sort of of the moment, trying to respond to immediate needs. But then he also, it began to grow rapidly. Um, you know, many um, national publications began to write stories on Revitalization Corps, and chapters began to spread across. Um, soon he opened, he opened up a chapter in Harlem, that he, and he sort of spent many years going back and forth between Hartford and Harlem. But then others who were inspired by his call to service um, opened up their own chapters on college campuses and in cities um, ranging from Miami, Florida, all the way out to um, Watts, L.A. How did uh, African-Americans look at Ned Cole and think, you know, who is this guy uh, coming into our neighborhoods? And I'm curious, you mentioned he was trying to reach out uh, to uh, whites in, in places like West Hartford. Were they skeptical? Yeah, I mean, initially, there was a lot of skepticism as to what um, Ned was doing in um, on the north end of Hartford. I mean, but I think, you know, he really was able to um, win the confidence and affection, really, of, of many in the community just by being himself and, and really spending time getting to know people in a, in a sort of, you know, sincere manner. You know, he really didn't come in with any agenda or any assumptions, but really just spent a lot of time listening, um, engaging, you know, sort of rapping with folks on the street, in barbershops, um, in their homes. And, and also really expecting the same of, of the um, suburban whites who um, volunteered with Revitalization Corps. You know, the families who um, were um, who participated in this were expected to go um, into um, the n- north end of Hartford, get to meet family African-American families in their homes as opposed to just simply having them come to the suburbs. So it was very much about sort of breaking down these divisions um, in a, on a sort of interpersonal level. Meanwhile, uh, there's a lot of unrest happening in U.S. cities, also here in Hartford, with uh, um, how African Americans were treated, um, where they were subjected to live. Can you walk us through some of how that unrest helped fuel uh, some of the activism and why people wanted to follow uh, Ned Cole and into this group? Yeah, I mean, this is, as you probably know, I mean, many of the listeners know, you know, the 1960s and the summers in the 1960s were a particular time of, of, of racial unrest in American cities. Um, Hartford, w- in particular, was racked by um, an uprising often referred to as a riot in the summer of 67, Harlem um, in 1964. And um, this was a time in particular, and this is kind of how... Um, Ned also kind of gravitated toward the issue of recreational inequality. Uh, Many of these incidents were sparked by um, conflicts over uh, outdoor recreational space. Um, But also, you know, as he saw, underlying many of the grievances of African-American communities was this issue of of recreational deprivation. The fact that and the fact that public officials didn't seem to care about the fact that uh, many um, inner city children lacked safe places to play. In Hartford in particular, um, there was a shockingly high number of drowning deaths of of black youth um, in the city, um, in particular along a stretch of the Park River that was close to two housing projects. And um, the the sort of response of public officials was was complete indifference. And this was something that really um, was one of the sort of issues that was um, fueling unrest and ultimately the Kerner Commission that, you know, issued its report in 1968, identified um, recreational inequality um, as one of the sort of um, high levels of grievance um, that was common across many of the um, riot-torn cities in America. 
Uh, you mentioned the, the Kerner Commission. This was uh, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, the Kerner Commission releasing this report on, on urban violence in 1968. So when that report came out, I mean, but with, if Ned Cole wasn't there with his group, uh, the Revitalization Corps, again, uh, bringing awareness to the disparities, is this something that would have just been buried? You know, I mean, you know, Ned was someone who sort of thought that the Kerner Commission report should be read by every American. I mean, you know, he was he thought that this should be gospel. You know, that this would be something that um, would help sort of awaken, in particular, those suburban white families who had seemed to sort of um, become cold and indifferent to the problems of urban America. That by reading that and understanding the lessons. Um, of it, we could begin to work towards solutions. So he really um, was a, you know, proselytized on um, the importance of, of the Kerner Commission and what um, its findings um, really said to um, all America. He was uh, encouraging the armchair activists uh, to actually do something and not just talk about it in their homes and with yeah, the people abs- they know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he, as he described himself, he was someone who believed in gut liberalism, not the sort of kind that, you know, you would see happen in a, you know, a college classroom or, um, you know, the res- result in position papers or other sort of statements. It was, it was manifest through action. And that was, and it, and it came from the gut. It came from instinct. And that was something that sort of guided him throughout this time period was the idea that, you know, we, we don't have time to sit around and talk about these issues. We need to sort of um, engage on a direct level and help improve people's lives and work towards a better country. Now, how did uh, Ned Cole gravitate toward beach access um, from spending time, again, uh, highlighting the disparities and the issues of poverty within uh, neighborhoods and cities? Yeah, I mean, it was really, in a sense, almost by accident. I mean, you know, as one of the many initiatives that Revitalization Corps was leading was one that was aimed at sort of providing um, summer recreational um, options for um, African-American children living on the north end of Hartford. And um, one of the sort of ideas that he came up with was to rent a van and bring a, um, a group of kids down to the shoreline. Um, he didn't think of this as a protest at all. He just thought that this would be a good, um, you know, activity. And, and, and many of the African-American mothers who were critical in um, the work that Revitalization Corps did were very strongly in support of it as well. You know, they wanted to see their children get these type of, you know, enrichment activities and, and the types of recreation that um, the rest of Americans seem to sort of, you know, consider a sort of right of childhood. And um, so they sort of you know, started this initiative to start um, you know, sending children to the shore. But when they got there, they discovered that there was nowhere they could go. Because there were uh, so many private areas due to beach associations that had been formed along these shore towns? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and even the public beaches, with the exception of the state beaches at Hammonasset, um, you know, really, you know, there were very few places that were um, open to the general public. And and also he didn't he really wanted to sort of engage with the folks who lived in, in vacation along the shoreline. He envisioned you know sort of had a very rosy image of of white and black children playing together and um, white and black parents talking and, and realizing their common humanity and finding sort of ways to begin to break down those stereotypes. He thought that leisure spaces and leisure activities could actually be a vehicle for um, building a more integrated society. But as he discovered, um, you know, there, you know, the white f- folks who lived along these shorelines were not interested in that at all. In fact, you know, were not they were not greeted warmly at all. 
Andrew Carl is Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Virginia, author of the new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. An excerpt of that book is on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, if you want to join the conversation, if you remember uh, growing up on the beach or if you remember Ned Cole, uh, a very uh, uh, controversial figure in the 60s and 70s, um, we wish we should say that he wasn't able to join us uh, uh, due to health issues. Uh, Ned Cole, but Andrew, you're you're we're talking through your book. Uh, that you did a lot of research on uh, what led Ned Cole uh, to try to free the beaches and raise awareness. So I'm curious if you could walk us through some of uh, the first incidents when he rented the buses and went to a particular beach uh, in Old Lyme, for example. Yeah, and um, you know, really, you know, his his he became really radicalized on this issue after um, a particularly negative incident at, in Old Lyme in the summer of 1971 when they came to one of the um, private beaches along the shoreline um, and and were you know received very you know hostile um, reactions from residents, um, you know, racist sort of epithets being thrown at um, the parents and children, and at that moment he really was you know it opened his eyes to the extent of the problem and of the sort of pervasive um, racism among many of the um, families who lived along the shore. And at that point, he began to realize this, that um, this issue of, of beach access was about more than just the beach itself. In fact, it was very much a kind of issue about um, the public's right to public space and about the sort of um, structural barriers that had been sort of put up along the shoreline and, and throughout society that prevented um, African-Americans from um, freely participating in um, these sort of, you know, things that, um, you know, money Americans also enjoyed. Our number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is all going on in Connecticut, but there's also a push in other, in other states uh, to open up access. Can you walk us through a little bit of what was happening elsewhere, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is um, coinciding with a sort of open beaches movement that is spreading across um, coastal America um, in response to the sort of you know, the problem of privatization and the diminished num- um, access f- to the general public. Also, the overdevelopment and environmental degradation of shorelines all sort of um, led to this um, the flowering of, of movements that were very local, but also kind of eventually became national toward um, restoring the public's right to its shorelines, which is a sort of ancient right that goes back all the way to the Roman Empire and one that is sort of a part of American common law that is that states that you know, the foreshore is public land and um, you know the public has a right to enjoy and access it. And so you know this all, but as Americans began to see that right slipping out of their grasp, um, there were um, concerted efforts to um, both fight in the courts and on the beaches um, toward um, restoring that right. Um, you were talking about the right to uh, this space, so from the water to the high mark, high tide uh, mark. I and mean, is that an area that was always considered public? But if you weren't part of these associations or town residents, you weren't able to even access those that area. Yeah, I mean that's the sort of the the problem in Connecticut in particular. Is, yes, legally the um, the wet sand portion of the shoreline is public land, but if there's no way to um, get to it by um, by land, then you know the, you really don't sort of enjoy that right. And so that was um, you know an issue that Ned also was calling attention to is the fact that um, you know we were being denied um, the the general public was being denied um, its right to this this space that belonged to everyone. Um, 
And um, this was, again, a sort of, you know, something that um, many others in other parts of the country were also calling attention to, um, usually, you know, again, in response to the overdevelopment and privatization of, of beaches. And when uh, you write in your book, whenever there were efforts to uh, whether to uh, pass legislation to protect the coast or to maybe um, make the uh, local autonomy uh, less strict, there was a big backlash. So politicians weren't getting anywhere. Yeah, I mean, this is a, something that I think I, I, you know, I discovered in the course of doing research for this was how uh, privatization and the sort of exclusionary culture that we began to, you know, you saw in many of these communities was not just sort of antisocial and wasn't just sort of, you know, didn't just have effects on, um, you know, on society, but was also environmentally destructive because it resulted in um, measures that were often, you know, very damaging to the shoreline itself and also, you know, sort of led to the um, a sort of political culture that was resistant to regulation out of fear that, um, you know, sort of regu- regulatory bodies, whether they be state or federal, might um, undermine the ability of, of private homeowners or beach communities to restrict access. And so as a result, you began to see um, sort of a kind of um, efforts to really sort of either prevent um, legislation or really sort of gut um, regulatory agencies' um, ability to um, manage shorelines in the interest of environmental protection and in the interest of the public. Uh, when we talk about the environment, not to uh, understate, but there were, and you write in your book, by the mid-1960s, there were 26,000 acres of wetlands. Half of them were gone because of this overdevelopment and no uh, restrictions on what was being built. Yeah, and this is very much a sort of a byproduct of the um, you know, systems of gov- the system of government in Connecticut, which really um, gave a you know a lot of autonomy to um, local municipalities. Um, was very resistant to um, coordination amongst um, cities and towns. You know, as you as many listeners might know, in 1960, the state abolished um, county governments. So, I mean, you really had a kind of very highly fragmented, localized political culture in the state that made it all the more difficult to come up with um, solutions that were in the interest both of you know, the shoreline itself as well as the general public. You're talking about the Home Rule Act. We're still talking about that in Connecticut today with uh, efforts mm. to regionalize uh, and, uh, you know, towns and municipalities kind of putting their uh, their heads in the sand when it comes to thinking about better ways uh, to um, have government and share resources. Uh, but Ned Cole, again, he was a, a figure that, you know, some people loved him, but a lot of people hated him. What about his personality, Andrew, that, that got pe- under people's skin? Yeah, I mean, he was someone who was very controversial, and um, you know, someone who was 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 really fearless in his um, in his protest tactics. I mean, he um, engaged in a whole variety of very inventive um, forms of protest, as well as you know, you know was very sort of um, quick witted and had you know great you know as one reporter described him as a human quote machine because he was just so good at sort of you know really capturing issues and drawing public attention to not just the issue of beach access but a whole variety of sort of injustice. Um, in the state. And um, and so that was something I think that, you know, but really, you know, he, and he was not afraid to sort of take on communities. And I think in, in that respect, as he became increasingly outraged over um, the exclusionary practices of shoreline towns, he really sort of went after these communities directly um, and challenged them to sort of live up to their own ideals and also really challenged their right to, um, you know, sort of hoard these natural resources. But, you know, it did so in a way that I think many um, said that perhaps he was generating more heat than light on this issue. 
Ned Cole uh, tried to run for office, uh, first uh, congressional district, uh, and he was an outsider. Uh, the Democrats didn't want anything to do with him, so he, he tried to run as an independent. And later, he tried to run for president. Yes, except despite being only 32 years old at the time and, and unable to actually hold the office, he was able to get onto the New Hampshire um, Democratic primary ballot and into a nationally televised debate against the major candidates in 1972. Before we take some calls, I had mentioned uh, politicians not getting anywhere with trying to figure out a, a way uh, to open up beach access, but also to placate uh, the, the concerns of, of these uh, property owners that, that, had, um, that lived in these towns and felt like these beaches were something that they worked hard for uh, in the town, paid for the taxes, paid to take care of them. Um, they should be able to restrict access. Uh, Governor Ella Grasso, for one, uh, did a beach tour. And, and what were some of the things that she told people? You know, Ella Grasso was a very savvy politician, and she, you know, but she came into office at the time when this issue was really, um, you know, at its sort of peak. And uh, you know, Ned Cole really sort of, you know, challenged her directly to live up to some of her, um, you know, sort of, you know, to 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 actually sort of speak to her constituents, in particular, many of those who um, were not fortunate enough to own a um, house along the shoreline, and and many, you know, many whites in Connecticut were also very. you know, we're increasingly sort of outraged over the fact that there was very few places along the shore that um, they could um, access as well. And so, she, but so she tried to sort of um, show that she was concerned about this. She tried to really sort of work with Ned. In fact, actually, she appointed him as an unpaid um, advisor to the governor's office for a period in the late 70s. But at the same time, she, you know, when it came down to it, she was very resistant to the idea of, of, of um, challenging the rights of um, of private beach associations and of um, shoreline property owners, and ultimately just tried to sort of work around the edges, trying to find ways to acquire um, undeveloped land along the shoreline and maybe create um, more public, you know, state beaches. Um, But as as she soon discovered, there was very little land left to acquire. Um, But, you know, so she was someone who tried to sort of delicately um, dance around this issue. And as a result, you know, Ned then came after her and sort of, you know, called her out for her inaction. This is where we live. Andrew Carl is an associate professor of history at the University of Virginia and African-American studies as well, author of the new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Join our conversation at 860-275-7266. Uh, uh, is calling uh, with a question from New London. Mwakil, go ahead. Yes, um, I live in New London. Uh, I lived in New London. Um, and there was a beach called um, Butler Beach. It was right in the back of... Um, and it's still there, right in the back of uh, the Coast Guard Academy, uh, where Mike Pence uh, gave a commencement speech yesterday. And um, back in the 60s, that beach, uh, the ocean beach in the city, was had a de facto uh, segregation policy. And, and, and black stars didn't migrate to this beach. Okay? My question is, were there any other segregated beaches by race in Connecticut, or in other parts of, of, of the country. Thank you for your qualm, um, for your calm, Joaquin. Go ahead, uh, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, you know, shorelines and beaches across the U.S. were um, either explicitly or informally segregated throughout um, the first half of the 20th century. Um, my first book actually is a, um, a history of African-American beaches in the South and sort of you know, looks at the sort of ways in which African-Americans sought to um, circumvent Jim Crow through cr- um, carving out their own spaces. And it sounds like here in New London, we had a sort of similar example of that. But in Connecticut in particular, you really had a sort of form of racial segregation um, 
um, through both privatization and then the kind of selective enforcement of these sort of private act, um, private property laws. So, you know, one of the things that I discovered was that, you know, um, African Americans, say, living in city, um, cities like New Haven and elsewhere, you know, soon discovered, um, you know, early in life that, um, you know, beaches, while they were not sort of, you know, explicitly segregated by race, um, were often informally segregated, and they learned um, where they were welcome and where they were not welcome. And also, um, you know, I sort of use an example from the, the civil rights icon, Constance Baker Motley, who grew up in New Haven, and she, um, when asked to describe the sort of first time she really encountered racism as a youth, she met, she said that it happened on on the state shoreline when she accompanied two um, white friends of hers to a beach in Milford. And this was technically a private beach, but um, her her white friends had always been able to go there without any problems. No one asked them for a beach pass. And but yet the first time that um, she accompanied them. Suddenly, they were stopped at the gate, and there was a membership requirement. And um, I think that was kind of indicative of the ways that um, segregation worked in the North. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking with Andrew Carl, author of the new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Again, an excerpt of his book is on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Up next, one of those kids from Hartford who went on these beach trips with Ned Cole is now a father and business owner. He'll tell us what he remembers about Ned Cole and what it was like to show up in a place where he wasn't welcome. And we'll take your calls too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just last week, we did a show on the lack of swimming pools in urban areas and how historically in this country, minorities were kept from accessing them in the 20th century. Now, some states are fortunate to have access to water, like Connecticut's beautiful shoreline. But just because there were beaches didn't mean everyone was welcome to use them. And just a little bit, we're going to hear from a Hartford resident uh, who remembers Ned Cole and uh, still talks with him today. Uh, Before that, we get to Liebert uh, Fitzgerald Lester II. I want to take a quick call. Becca's calling from Branford. Becca, uh, what's your comment or question? Um, Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I grew up on the shoreline in Connecticut um, on a very sort of exclusive and private beach. There were only a handful of houses that had access to that beach. And I think uh, my brother and I, you know, even as kids had a sense of what a privilege that was and um, what a, you know, that it was unfair, (laughs) frankly, Mm -hmm. that we had access, not just, you know, to a place to play, but the calming effect of being that close to the water is, uh, as anybody who spent some time um, in the water or looking out over the horizon knows, it's really, I think, emotionally an incredible asset. Um, my brother now works in San Francisco for an organization called City Surf Project, and they take kids um, from public schools and bring them to the beach and teach them how to swim and surf, and they actually uh, train some of the students to teach other students. Um and I think in California, even he was struck. I think in California, the beaches are supposed to be protected as public space. But he remarked, I remember when he first started working there, that a lot of the kids, they're mostly um, Latino and black and first-generation Americans. A lot of the kids didn't even know they were allowed to go to the beaches. Um, and that's a state that, you know, has made some, I believe, some effort to keep the, uh, to the beaches open to all. But there's, you know, there are a lot of barriers in addition to the space just, um, you know, in Connecticut, a lot of the beaches being private, 
or even in California, access issues, um, just perception issues. Well, thank you, um, Becca, for, for your call again um, from Branford. I want to uh, ask uh, Liebert Fitzgerald Lester II, owner of It's a G-Thang, Barbers Salon and Spa in Hartford. Uh, thank you for coming back on the show, Liebert. You remember Ned Cole as a kid. You went on some of those bus trips. Yes, uh, we went on we went on numerous bus trips. Uh, you know, Ned Ned took us to the beach. You know, prior to that, we had never we had never seen the beach probably other than on te- television. And you know, so we we went on a lot of trips with Ned because the people in the community I don't know if they would rem- remember the name Revitalization Corps, but we called it twenty five fifty because that was the address where we would go and say, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to 2550. Because Ned, he always had activities. He uh, he introduced us to uh, UConn, in which he paired us with uh, tutors who would help us with our schoolwork. And, you know, if you, if you had problems with your reading, your writing, your math, you know, he always had something for us. And then, you know, we weren't aware that the things that he was he was doing was controversial because... Ned, he made everything seem so simple. Mm. How did the white children react when uh, you came on one of their beaches? Um, well, the most memorable thing that I remember from being on the beach was uh, we went to the beach, and there were just white people out there. And uh, we looked at it as just white people. But then when we actually went onto the beach, we arrived and we got onto the beach, there were, there were some white boys that were building a sandcastle. And so I wanted to build a sandcastle, too. And so when I went there with the little white boys, uh, they rejected me. They, uh, they didn't allow me to build the, the uh, castle with them. So I left, and I just started digging, building my own castle. I'm like, okay, cool, no problem. And then I noticed there was a little white girl. She went to build with the, uh, with the white boys, and, they, were, and they, they rejected her as well. But then she saw me build, and she came over to where I was. And so I'm like, okay, some help. You know, a girl, cool. You know, we're going to build a sandcastle. And so we're building. I don't know how long we were working on the castle, but then I know I looked up. The dad came. I guess he grabbed it, and he snatched her arm and pulled her away. And I looked, you know, as a little kid, you know, I didn't understand what was happening. And she returned, and she returned, and, uh, you know, we're still working on the um, castle. And she asked me, why don't I just go into the water and just wash it off? And I was like, like, wash off what? I didn't know what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so then I guess I get dad came and got her again, and uh, she went away. And then getting older and then, you know, becoming knowledgeable about racism and all of those things, I realized that what she was talking about, wash off, was the dirt, this, the dirt on my skin. Because mm-hmm. she was like, you know, the dirt. <clears throat> but when she said the dirt, I was thinking of the sand that was on my hands, you know, mm-hmm. just wash it off. And I'm saying to myself, if we're building, why would I wash it off? Because you got to go get water. You got to dig in the sand. And so I'm like, if she's going to be trying to keep her hands clean, you can't build a castle. But, um, you know, her dad, the second time he took her away, she never came back. And, you know, when I, when Andrew, when I talked to Andrew, that's when I really began to think about that because he was telling me that he was doing a book on Ned and about the beaches. And so when I reflected upon it, I was like, wow, you know, that, you know, that was really significant. The fact that she didn't know that, you know, my blackness couldn't 
be washed washed it off. Andrew Carl is with us from the University of Virginia, author of this book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. Uh, So while uh, Ned and the RC and little kids like Liebert uh, were trying to raise awareness by uh, visiting these beaches as a protest, uh, this was also uh, making its way through the courts. And was there any success in opening the beaches uh, for people in Connecticut? Well, not during the time when Ned was most active on the issue. It didn't come until 2001, and it was as a result of a lawsuit filed by um, a law student um, named Brendan Layden, um, who was stopped when trying to jog through um, Greenwich's um, beach and um, because he was a non-resident. And they um, said that you know non-residents were not allowed on the shoreline, and he... Um, decided to sue the town, um, challenging the constitutionality, um, both on the grounds of the public trust doctrine that you know states that the pub, that the shoreline is is public property, but also on the basis of um, free speech rights that they were restricting his right to free speech and association. So um, that worked its way through the courts in the late 1990s, and ultimately um, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that towns like Greenwich could not um, restrict public beaches to residents only. Now, uh, because they couldn't restrict them, uh, shore towns, other places, especially Greenwich, found different ways to try to restrict non-residents. What were some of those tactics? Yeah, I mean, they really sort of resisted and sought to undermine the spirit of that decision um, ever since and continue to do so, um, you know, either through um, play, you know, removing par- public parking spaces or um, making parking lots um, near, near the shoreline um, open to residents only. Um, putting in place a whole cumbersome set of um, uh, requirements in order to uh, purchase a beach pass. So, for instance, in Greenwich, you know, to buy a beach pass, you have to go to the opposite side of the town in a in some city office building that's not even open on the weekends in order to buy a beach pass. I mean, really putting in place just a number of hoops that are all meant to sort of dissuade, and if not make it, you know, practically impossible for um, outsiders to um, get in. What is Ned's, Ned Cole's legacy today, Andrew? And I'll ask that of our guest, Liebert, as well. Uh, first, Andrew. Well, I think, you know, the legacy is one, you know, you can see it in the lives of people like Liebert and many others who are really touched and, and really um, affected by the work that he did um, in the community. I would say also, you know, on the issue of his activism, I think it's a cautionary tale for, you know, the need for um, activists to um, form partnerships and collaborate and form coalitions and be and not sort of allow um, you know a sort of issue or a movement to become too reliant on one individual because um, you know Ned sort of you know he marched to the beat of his own drum often and he um, sort of resisted the kind of sort of you know building coalitions with other groups and organizations um, to the point when when his um, health began to suffer um, in the 1980s um, when he sort of you know, you know reached retirement years um, it was difficult to sort of continue the work of revitalization core as a result uh, Lieber you're still friends with Ned today tell us about his legacy what it means to you well um Ned, he, he comes to the, he frequents the barbershop. He calls me all the time, and when you speak to Ned, he still has the fire of the past, and he tells me, oh, you got to be a leader. You you guys have to stand up, and he complain, or well, not complain, but he addresses all of the issues. And, you know, he's he's talking about Donald Trump trying to turn back the clock, and, and he's saying to me, you know, you need to lead the people. You got to stand up. You remember the things that we used to do? And I was like, Ned, I'm like, you should be relaxing now. You know, he'll come up. Like, Ned calls me all the time. 
But um, Ned had a profound impact on the community. Everyone, you know, they say a lot of things about the north end of the city. Um, but everyone knows Ned. Ned Ned come to the barbershop on the bus, and Ned would just was would just take a walk. You know, he would walk up Nelson, go around um, down Barber, come back down Westland, and come to the barbershop. And he said he wants to see what's going on. And those are a lot of the areas where people say, oh, my God, you know, he, he, he's over there, you know, and I'm like, people are like, man, that's Ned, that's Ned. <laughs> and, you know, people are saying like, you know, the like little kids are saying like, well, who is Ned? And like the, like our children in the community, they, they don't know Ned, but everyone knows Ned. So Ned, Ned is like a fixture in the community. Everybody remembers Ned. Remember Ned putting pressure on Kmart till we got a tractor trailer load of toys so that for Christmas, Everyone, you know, had new toys. Ned had clothes. Ned had food. I mean, Ned did so much in the community. And, you know, you would go places like like the racism uh, was everywhere. But then you see Ned. Ned was a white man, and Ned was doing all of these good things. And so you would look at it like say, okay, what's the difference between Ned, white guy, and then this other white guy? Ned sees us as being human. Ned sees that, you know, we should have access to certain things. And Ned was genuine in his help to help us. So, I mean, Ned's, his legacy will live because, you know, he had some conflict with the Hartford Current. He calls me any time. He, he always wants something done. It's like, gee, I, he calls me G. He's like, gee, I need you to get on top of this. We're, we we got to put pressure on the current. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Or, I mean, it's always something. He's an activist to this yes, day. Yes, he's an activist yeah. to this day. And we should yeah. mention again that uh, Ned wasn't able to join us because of his health issues, but his impact lives on, and you yes. still talk with him. Yes. I, like, I was just calling people and texting <laughs> people. I said, listen, we're talking about Ned. I said, I need you guys to call NPR. And then, you know, sending back, oh, I'm at work, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. They, they can't call in or whatever. But Ned, Ned did so much because, like I said, what he did with the um, tutorial program with UConn, that had a profound impact on the kids because every every Tuesday, a busload of kids would come in from UConn and they would tutor us. And then one one Saturday a month, we would go to UConn and just hang out with your tutor, see the college campus and all of those things. So he was introducing us to things that we wouldn't normally see. And like Miss Linda, my brother Ricky and I, if you remember us, Miss Linda, you're from Bolton. We had been looking for you. Uh, <laughs> You know, the little two the two little black boys from Hartford, Connecticut. And my brothers in Atlanta, we were talking about Miss Linda because we were able to go. She took us fishing and we would go over there for the weekend. You know, so Ned Ned did a lot of profound things. Liebert Fitzgerald Lester II, owner of It's a G Thang Barber Salon and Spa in Hartford. Thank you for coming on and telling us about your memories of Ned and, and how you're still friends today. Thank you for having me. Also, Andrew Carl, who's the author of this new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. We thank you for joining us, Andrew. Oh, thank you so much. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.